Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. It's a bit of a chilly morning, I know, but uh, we'll warm up uh, as we study the Word, and as it gets a little warmer today, we'll continue to get a little more comfortable in here. Uh, with that in mind, I do want to make a note uh, as we are beginning uh, that you are able to give uh, while you're here with us. If you're giving in person, you can give as you exit. You also are able to give both online uh, via web, web browser or by scanning this QR code. It will actually take you directly to the giving page. And so if you are hip with the lingo and know how to use a QR code, you are able to do that. Now, as we begin today, we're going to continue into our study of the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at the first part of Stephen's speech as he's standing before the priest in the temple. And in this speech, as we look at this, as we've studied this, I've titled this a spiritual biography. You see, as we look at this, we're going to recognize some things that Stephen is doing to explain context, provide understanding for the people that have gathered together. You know, I'm a bit of a book nerd, and I like reading biographies. I know, shocker, you've seen my office, right? And I enjoy reading biographies. One of my favorite writers is David McCullough. He's an American historian, and one of the things I appreciate about David McCullough's writing is not only is he a good writer, but what he does is he's writing about historical figures like Harry Truman, John Adams, all these people that you want to know more about, is that he provides context you see, it's not enough as we're looking back at history to just understand dates and facts and people and just walk in with this blanket statement of they existed, they lived, they did something. Rather, we have to understand the context of the time they lived in and what was it that they actually did. That's one of the things I enjoy about reading his biographical works is because not only does he give the basic facts of where they were born and what they did, but he truly helps you understand what the importance of this person was. Why should we study them? Why should we devote hours to reading these books to better understand them? You see, what we have happening here in this section of the book of Acts is Stephen is performing that necessary biographical work for the people of Israel. You see, as he's standing in the temple before these leaders who are condemning him for saying what they believe is heresy, he is telling them that if you truly understood the history of our people, you would not say that what I am proclaiming is heresy, but rather you would join me in worshiping the one who has made it all true and possible. And so... As we look at this section of scripture, we see that what Stephen is providing is a spiritual biography for the people of Israel. That he is showing them that the dates and facts and these things are, are important that you know. You must understand them in the context of the one who has come, the one whose name is Jesus. So as we typically do, we'll read this passage of scripture together. Because it's a longer passage, I want you to remain seating. I'll go ahead and read this for us, beginning with verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, 
but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back into Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And thus, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, Seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, and Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard their groaning, and I have come to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture, it is our hope and our prayer that you would reveal your truth to us. As we study this, this history of Egypt, as we truly try to understand what's happening here, may we recognize that understanding this biography here 
provides real implications for our faith. That this allows us to understand who we are in light of who Christ is, Father. That all we have, all we are, is meaningful only when looked at through the lens and light of the gospel. So, Father, would you reveal yourself to us? Would you show us the meaning of these words and allow us to better understand what it is that you are doing in your world today? Father, we are thankful for you, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we jump into this passage, let's get some context from where we're at. We just left off with Stephen being charged with speaking against Moses in the temple. And he's standing before the temple leaders, and they've essentially asked him, Are these things so? Are these things true? Are you speaking heresy against Moses and the temple? You see, Stephen, unlike many of us, he doesn't try to give them a yes or no answer. Rather, he jumps right into this targeted explanation of Israel's history. That really, this seems very out of place for a man who's trying to prove he's innocent, right? That if we are accused of a crime, our first instinct as innocent people would be to say, No, I didn't do it. This is false. But rather than do that, Stephen decides to bring context to the conversation. You see, he recognizes that the perfect answer that he's been inspired by the Lord to provide is to not address the charges that are brought against him, but rather explain the history of Israel in light of Jesus the Messiah. You see, he's been speaking about Jesus and the people of Israel, the people that are in this temple, they have interpreted speaking about Jesus as him speaking against Moses in the temple. You see, his speech here is focused on explaining how the law and the prophets point to Christ. You see, his text here, his speaking here is focused on explaining how the law and prophets point to Christ. You see, the entire Bible is about Jesus. We recognize that on this side of Christ. But in this moment, the people of Israel, this is their first exposure to this idea that every dot, every iota, everything that has been said from the beginning of Genesis all the way through the Old Testament is about Jesus. And so he is making an argument that he cannot be speaking against Moses and the temple because the reason Moses and the temple exists is to point people to Jesus. His defense can really be summed up with this idea that he rightly believes the gathered leaders here, they don't truly understand their history because they're trying to ignore Jesus and how he makes sense of everything around them. So how does he try to explain it? How does he try to make this clear to the people of Israel? Well, our first point is that they've misunderstood their spiritual heritage. They've simply just misunderstood their spiritual heritage. You see, Stephen begins with speaking about the father of the Jews, Abraham. As we've just read, we recognize that he has pointed out the fact that everyone who's a good Jewish believer knows that Abraham is the spiritual father of the Jewish people. And as he's speaking, he gives us his context by saying, God called him out in Mesopotamia. He called to him, he went to him and said, come towards Israel. Come and obey me, Abraham. You see, this is the start of the covenant, this promise that God is making with the Jewish people. Now, what's interesting here that Stephen is pushing on against the popular culture 
is that he's pushing against the centrality of the Holy Land in the Jewish faith. You see, in this time, in this culture, and it still bears true today, that within Jewish customs, within the Jewish faith, the Holy Land of Israel is a key part of their faith. It's central to it. So many of their rituals and worship, the obedience to following God, they're tied up into the Holy Land. Now, Stephen's not denying that this nation of Israel is not a holy place. He's not making that argument. Rather, his intent, he's saying that God's intent, God's purpose, was to create a people, not a land. His purpose was to create a people, a nation of people, not a geographic location. You see, in fact, it can be said that he created land only because he created the people. He created the land only because he created a people. You see, God had created a land for holy people. You remember earlier this year as we were looking through the book of Leviticus, studying from beginning to end, the point of that book is that God has called his people to worship him. And if he is holy, he calls his people to be holy. And they're to be a holy people regardless of where they live. This is why this section of scripture is so important. As we're looking at this, Stephen is making clear that the Jewish people have forgotten that they are merely passing through this land into the next one, into heaven. You may remember as we look back at 1 Peter last year, that phrase, sojourners and strangers, that finds some of its origin here in the writings of Luke in the book of Acts. This idea that we are not citizens of this world, we are not citizens of any earthly nation, but our true citizenship is resting in Christ Jesus and in a new heavens and a new earth. That is to not make light of our responsibility as citizens of the United States, but as to recognize that that is in submission to our citizenship in heaven. And so Jesus is... This explanation of who Jesus is is coming out. Stephen is trying to make clear that you have forgotten that your first love is to God, not to this holy land. Now Stephen's trying to make this clear and he points to it a bit subtly as he's beginning this argument by referencing Mesopotamia. Now you may not know much about Mesopotamia, but in the known world of that time, Mesopotamia is about the farthest you can get from Israel. They really don't know of many other places that are farther. Mesopotamia is in the middle of nowhere, okay? There's not a gas station. There's nothing, okay? It's nowhere. And what Stephen is saying is that Abraham, he was all the way in the middle of nowhere, and God went to him. You see, he's trying to show that God is not limited or restricted to a certain patch of land. See, God goes to Abraham while Abraham is in the furthest part of the known world. He's demonstrating, he's trying to express that God's power and reach is greater than any piece of land. You see, God calls the entire world his. Every bit of it is his. Now, as he's explaining this, he's also giving us some foreshadowing right now. That he's letting us look towards the future movement of the gospel. You see, shortly after these verses, we see that persecution really ramps up within the nation of Israel, within the city of Jerusalem. And the church is forced to scatter. 
They are sent out into the world. And as they are sent out, what do they begin to do? Well, they begin to take the gospel into places where there are Gentiles. See, these Gentiles are anyone who's not descended from a Jewish family, who's not a part of this covenant. And the gospel is being sent out into all the world that God calls His, so that all people may know who Jesus is. Maybe Stephen's aware of this coming persecution and scattering due to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Maybe he's not, but what he is doing is he's making clear that the gospel is not limited to a specific group of people or to a certain location. That the gospel is effective to save anyone and everyone who will call upon the name of Jesus no matter where they are. You see, Stephen is providing necessary context for them to understand their spiritual heritage. Because so much of their heritage has been wrapped up in the temple, in the land, and he is saying that these are temporary things. Your true inheritance rests in heaven with Jesus. Now, he doesn't just end there, because as he's beginning to explain this understanding of what they really need to view their history through, he continues with our second point, which is that they rejected their God-sent deliverers. They rejected their God-sent deliverers. Now, Stephen is continuing to explain the history of Israel in light of Christ to his audience. And he's addressing two patriarchs or fathers of the nation with Joseph and with Moses. And with this, we see a continual rehashing, this pattern that the nation of Israel rested in. As we look through the Old Testament, we can see this happen throughout the Old Testament. That the people of Israel will go astray. That God, seeking to bring them back to him, sends a prophet. The prophet tells them, Woe are you, you filthy sinners, come back to this God, our first love. And the nation of Israel's response is usually to kill the prophet. And later on they realize that he was right, oops, and we should probably listen to him. So they repent, and this cycle begins again where after they repent, they go astray and a prophet comes and they kill him. The being a prophet is a dangerous thing within the Old Testament because they all die. If you haven't read it, they're all dead. They were all killed by Israel. Now he's pointing back to these two patriarchs, these two fathers, to explain why they need to think differently and understand that they have a history of rejecting people that come from God. He talks about Joseph here in verses 9 through 16, right? Joseph fits this description due to his rejection from his brothers. If you're not familiar with the story of Joseph... He's born to Jacob, and he's the one that's going to rescue his family, rescue Israel. He's going to be one of the prophesied redeemers of the nation of Israel. And in this time, he's got these prophecies that Jacob's continually talking about and harping on in Genesis to his brothers. And his brothers, all older than him, like any older brother would do, that younger one's kind of annoying. He's more annoying by the fact that he's the favorite. He's more annoying by the fact that my parents might be right about him. And as any older sibling would try to do, they try to get rid of him. Trust me, if you're an older sibling like me, you've always tried to make your younger ones disappear at some point. 
And they take it to the furthest extreme where they decide, perhaps we should kill him. In the last moment, they change their mind and throw him into a hole and say, let's figure out what happens from here. Well, as we look at Genesis, Jacob is very clear about the significance of Joseph to his brothers. He's very clear about what God is going to do through Joseph. His brother's response was to get rid of him, toss him into a hole, and just say, be gone with him. And as happens so often throughout Scripture, the one that God sent to provide redemption was rejected by the very people who needed redemption. It's a pattern throughout not only the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it's a pattern that continues today. That in light of our sinful natures, just who we are as broken people, when redemption comes into our world and offers an opportunity for us to be forgiven, our sinful nature rejects it. Our sin will continually push us away from the grace and mercy that comes through redemption and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Now, James Montgomery Boyce, a great pastor in the Philadelphia area many years ago, he points to this idea of Joseph being an example, a forerunner of Christ in this time. You see, he suggests that Joseph is an early example of Jesus in the Old Testament. That he's fulfilling this pattern of being rejected as a redeemer. He says that it's never clearly stated in the New Testament like we see with Moses and with others. But the way that he was mistreated, his being sent into a foreign land, and him becoming the salvation of his people despite their rejection of him reminds us so clearly of Jesus. You see, Stephen is trying to make a point very clear, very evident to his gathered listeners. You see, throughout Jewish history, they have persecuted and killed the prophets, the redeemers that have been sent to them. Just like Joseph's brothers tried to do here, just like the religious leaders did with Jesus. Now, Stephen's not finished because he continues and he speaks about Moses. Moses is our second example here, the latter half of what we read, 17 through 34. And Moses is really the primary focus of Stephen's speech right now. Moses is the one that the Sanhedrin was concerned about, right? This was the one that got them up in arms. This rumor, this possibility that he was speaking against Moses. Why is that? Why are they so upset over this reality he's condemning Moses, that he's saying things that would be heretical against Moses in the law? Well, you've got to remember that Moses is the one who had received the law from God, who had written it down, the book of Leviticus, written by Moses. And as he's received this law, this law is the center of the religious leaders' lives. That everything they know, every bit of power they have, it is all centered. It is anchored within the law. And so for Stephen to say anything that could be misconstrued as a condemnation of Moses, a a push against heretical thought there, it weakens their power. It makes them weaker. It makes them irrelevant to the people. 
that what they hear, what they fear, is that Stephen is eroding their power and authority. And so naturally, Stephen has to address this. He's got to talk about what's happening here. He's got to provide a witness to the fact that Moses himself points to Jesus. So his first move, the first thing that he does, is he addresses the history of Moses and the Jewish people in Egypt. See, verses 17 through 22, they are addressing Moses' early life within the nation of Egypt. He points out this transition from going from kings and royalty into slavery. That prophecy that was made earlier, not only in Acts 7, but all the way in Genesis 15, where it was proclaimed, it was prophesied that the people of Israel would go into slavery for 400 years. And then what? God would send a redeemer to set them free. Now, this transition into slavery, this was to be a signal to the people of Israel in the prophecies to show that things are getting bad, but things are getting bad, and the one who will make all things right for you is coming. Now, the one who would make all things right, his name is Moses for the people of Israel in this time. He's born and he's considered beautiful in God's sight. That can really be translated and understood as worthy, as honorable. That he is someone that God looks upon with favor. Again, fulfilling that Redeemer archetype, right? We see those very things said about Jesus. That he is one that God looks upon with favor. That he is pleased with him. Now we see that Moses in his story, if you're not familiar with this, is that he is protected by God's hand by the very enemy of the Jewish people, an Egyptian princess. You see, the king, the pharaoh of Egypt at that time, he was aware of this prophecy. That there was going to be a redeemer that would come that would set the people of Israel free. And so his response to that wasn't to welcome this coming redeemer, right? He's living in his life of rejecting all the promises of God. His response was to say, well, the Redeemer can't come if I kill all the boys. If all the men are dead, this prophesied Redeemer cannot fulfill this prophecy. And so his pattern, his habit, was to allow the Hebrew men to be exposed. That they would to die. Now, Moses' mother, as any mother would refuses to do this, and instead places him in a basket and sends him into the river. And by God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter, a princess, sees this basket and pulls this beautiful baby boy out. And this man, this boy who had become Moses, is raised by the very enemy of his people. That he receives the best education from the Egyptians that is possible. And he's referred to as a mighty man. He's well regarded within Egypt. He is a man of power and authority. How ironic that a man raised and educated in Pharaoh's house was God's choice to deliver the people of Israel from slavery. I mean, it truly is ironic that God would use the enemy of Israel to deliver his people from slavery. You see, we can see the story. God uses Moses ultimately to free the people of Israel from slavery and send them 
to be a holy people for His name and His glory. But we're not quite there yet because we are here just a few years after Moses has come into his own. And we see this pattern of Israel rejecting the redeemers play out here for Moses. See, verses 23 through 29, we see Moses come before and begin to intercede for his people. He sees one of his people being beaten and harassed. And he tries to rescue them. And in the midst of this, an Egyptian man has killed this overseer. And in this moment, look at this prophecy. And what should happen is that Moses should have been recognized as the promised redeemer for his people. That the nation of Israel should have looked at him, this man who was willing to risk all his office, his name, everything to protect his people. See, he was the man that God had sent to take them from slavery into freedom. Yet Israel rejected him from the beginning. You see, he defended his own against the cruel hand of the oppressors. But they rejected him and his calling from God. You see, the next day he tries to intercede in an argument. And one of the men, we can perhaps assume that he was losing the argument says, who are you to be a judge before me? Are you going to kill me like the Egyptian? And Moses, in shame and fear, runs away, abandoning everything. You see, he chooses to run into exile. Running away from God's call on his life to be the Redeemer. Running away from his people. Running away from everything because of the shame. Now Stephen closes this section with the story of the burning bush, verses 30 through 34. You see, Moses has lived away from his people for many years now. He's the father of two children, has a wife that he loves, and may be doing well now. And in the wilderness near Mount Sinai, he encounters this burning bush. And like many of us, if we were to see that in the middle of the wild, we might go investigate. And he goes and he looks at this burning bush, and he hears the voice of the Lord speaking to him, calling to him, proclaiming to him that he is God, and that Moses is now in a holy place, and that he has a plan for him. You see, this significant event we're talking about here in the land of Midian occurs far away from the nation of Israel. You see, the freeing and the founding of a formal nation for the people of Israel begins right here at this burning bush in the middle of nowhere, far away from what would be called the Holy Land. You see, the Jewish people view their land as a holy land because it was given to them by God. Yet God is making it very clear here that while the land is important, it's not holy because of any promise that God has made. You see, the land is holy because God himself dwells within the land. God's presence is here. Therefore, this place is holy. See, Stephen's making this point of referencing this holy place that's not in Jerusalem. Mount Sinai is a mountain in Gentile territory, and because God was there, it was holy. 
You see, Stephen is laying this groundwork for the remainder of his speech here. The remainder of his time, the the few minutes he has of his life, he's pointing to the things of Christ and what he has done. But this isn't just history for us to read and reflect on. This is a call for us to respond. You see, the question for us, for you and I that we have to wrestle with, is that are we like the Jewish people living in ignorance of our spiritual history? Are we like the Jewish people who are living in ignorance of our spiritual history? You might ask, well, Walter, what is my spiritual history? What is it that I've gotten written in the book of life? What is it that the Lord would say about me? Well, I believe those words can be found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You see, I believe what the Lord would say about us at one point in our life, in our journey, are these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind you see our spiritual history just as we look at the spiritual history of israel has to begin with our sinful condition. It has to begin with the fact that we are in need of redemption. That we are broken, we are in need of a Savior. And the words of Paul right here, whom we will see beginning next year in the book of Acts, and his story of God bringing this man to redemption. Those very words Paul wrote describing his own life. That he was a rebel against God. Those very words are written of my life, of Brian's life, of the life of everyone who has ever lived on this earth. Those words are written about them, about you and I, that we have lived our lives in rebellion against the God of the universe. And if the story ended there, then we would be separated from God by our sin for all eternity in hell. Yet, as Paul wrote those words, just a few short years after the stoning of Stephen that we'll see, just a few short years, he doesn't end the story there, but he writes verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, Paul, a man who led the stoning and persecution of Christians, writes these words a few short years later, 
having been redeemed by the free gift of grace that is found through Jesus. He was literally kicked off his donkey by the gospel, struck blind so that he might finally see. You see, the story doesn't end with our sin and with our condemnation. The story doesn't end with our brokenness. The story ends when we are made whole by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The story ends when we are united with Christ through His death, burial, and resurrection. The story ends when we have forgiveness and life eternal in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so today I simply ask you, what is your spiritual history? Are you still dead in your sin and shame or are you alive together with Christ? You see, the question today, the only response you and I need to make is this. Where are we and where do we want to be? Because if we are dead in our sin, then we must desire redemption and forgiveness. That we must call out to God himself and ask for his grace and mercy to forgive us. The Bible tells us that there is one prayer that you can be assured that God will always hear. And that is a prayer calling out to Him for salvation and redemption. No matter where you are, no matter where you go, no matter how far you have strayed from the holy presence of God, you can be forgiven. Perhaps you're here and your story is that you were dead in your sins, but you've been made alive together with Christ. Then your response is to celebrate, to praise Him for His continual mercy day after day. That you've been made alive together with Christ, and the only reason you are still alive together with Christ is because of His great love with which He loved you. So your response today is to sing clearly of how great your God is and to proclaim the good news that you were dead, but now you live in Christ who lives. Here in the next few moments, you'll have opportunity to respond to the good news that Jesus is not in the grave the tomb is empty, and he sits at the throne with the Father. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, just you going before the Lord. And then I'll close us praying together corporately for God to move in our hearts today. After that, we'll have an incredible time of worship, of singing about how great our Lord is. And it is my hope, it is my prayer that every person here under the sound of my voice would proclaim that the Lord is great indeed. That it is his breath that fills your lungs and that you'll sing his praises with that breath. As always, if the Lord is doing something in your life, Pastor Brian and I would love to hear, to know what it is that God is doing. If you're here, you are welcome to come speak to me during this time of worship. Afterwards, you can speak to Pastor Brian as well. If you're online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash contact. 
And this will be an opportunity for you to connect with us and just share what it is that God is doing in your life. It is my hope and my prayer that your spiritual history doesn't end with you being dead in sin, but that it ends with you being made alive together in Christ. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to study the spiritual history of the people of Israel. And Father, as we look at this section of Scripture, there's much wisdom we can take from it, but to sum it all up, the basic thing we can see, the most simple thing we can walk away from this, is asking the question in our own lives, what is our spiritual history? Father, where are we on this journey with you? Are we dead in our sin and trespasses? Or we've been made alive together with you? Father, it is my prayer that we would be united with you through the death, burial, and resurrection, through trusting in you for forgiveness of sins, Jesus. To receive this forgiveness, Lord, all we have to do is call upon your name and we will be saved. The blood will never lose its power. It will never cease to save. Jesus will redeem his people. And as Father, as Father, it's with that confidence we come before you. Asking for the great intercessor, Jesus himself, to move in our lives to bring redemption to us. So Father, today our prayer is simply this that you would make us alive together with Christ. That you would bring redemption to your people and let us live in light of Jesus sitting on the throne, resting in the fact that we'll be united with him one day in the next life. Father, we are thankful for the grace and mercy that you've shown us. And we pray these things. In the strong name of Jesus, amen.